Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Late Late Show with Catherine Taylor. My name uh, is Catherine Taylor, of course, and tonight my special guest guest is Donna Leafields. And uh, I'm hoping that Donna's going to phone into the studio um, in a moment and we'll have a chat. She's uh, an expert in talking about language, learning and pedagogical approaches, exploring the differences between project-based learning and phenomenon-based learning projects, projects with sparks um, that support uh the development of essential 21st century skills in our students. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to her about that. Um, It's been an interesting day in the world of uh, Catherine Taylor working in schools, uh, delivering all kinds of projects um, with students and my ECTs alike. And uh, today was quite the adventure going over to deliver some training to some ECTs as well. So I've had a good um, day with students and um, and uh, and our young teachers and our um, career change teachers as well, which is always really, really exciting. Um, before we speak to Donna, I'm going to go to the news and uh, hear some messages and I'll be back with you uh, speaking to Donna after these short messages. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Just Stop Oil have spray-painted universities across England. The climate campaigners used orange paint to coat buildings at the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Cambridge, according to a report on the BBC News website. The latest protests came after other universities across the country were also targeted. Just Stop Oil say the protests are against the UK government's plans to licence new oil and gas projects. 
The BBC report featured comments from a spokesperson for University of Leeds, which said that whilst they support the right to legal protest, they were hugely disappointed that the results had been vandalism. At the University of Cambridge, a protester painted the neo-Gothic King's College orange and was confronted by members of the public. The majority of protesters have been arrested and charged with criminal damage. After the Tory party conference, attention turned to Labour's proposals for education should they be elected. Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Education Secretary, said a Labour government would upskill non-math specialists in primary schools to create the maths equivalent to phonics. The announcement marks a clear dividing line with Conservative policies, with Labour focused on the youngest school children, whilst Conservatives have focused on extending compulsory maths teaching to 18. The curriculum review would also be tasked with bringing maths to life and directing teachers to show children how numeracy is used in the world around them. The plans have been tentatively welcomed by the NAHT and General Secretary Paul Whiteman said it was vital that Labour builds upon the excellent maths teaching that is already taking place. Jeff Barton of Askell added, Ensuring that primary schools have the funding for the resources they need was vital to improving attainment. After the distressing news of events unfolding in Israel, many news outlets have reported on government plans to support Jewish schools with extra security guards. Security and police patrols have already been increased, but the government has given £3 million in funding. Measures taken by some schools already include pupils being told to remove blazers, and school trips being postponed. The BBC also reported that three schools have closed due to concerns. The Community Security Trust, CST, which provides protection for Jewish communities in the UK, said there had been 139 anti-Semitic incidents since the recent attacks on Israel. At this time last year, there had been only 21 incidents. A government spokesperson said it was very concerned a small number of Jewish faith schools had temporarily closed and that it would be working to support them to open safely. Finally, BBC Wales education correspondent Bethan Lewis writes that children as young as seven or eight are using social media according to a major survey in Wales. Responses from more than 32,000 children aged 7 to 11 suggest almost half use social media sites or apps a few times a week. Public health experts said the data was concerning, as most social media carry minimum age recommendations of 13. Parents also responded with many saying they found it hard to strike the right balance between the benefits and pitfalls of smartphones. Full details of the survey can be found on the BBC Wales section of the news website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox. I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about Donna's work as we as we talk. So we're going to be discussing Donna's work developing and using techniques that supplement classroom materials with the aim of giving students more opportunities to develop those key competencies that celebrate a global vision and a broader cultural awareness. Um, these techniques and strategies, often called scaffolds in the educational world, are most effectively implemented through a three-tiered interdisciplinary structure of mini lessons, scaffolding, body of lesson, formative evaluation. And we will also explore the differences between project-based learning and phenomenon-based learning, um, 
which can be known as Project with Sparks, that support and develop essential 21st century skills. Now, do remember that if you are listening live and would like to join us, either to post questions in the chat uh, for Donna to answer, or if you'd like to call in and speak to us, then please download the Podbean app and visit ttradio.org and listen live on the homepage. This oh, my welcome. goodness. It's a pleasure to be here, Catherine. Don't worry at all. <laughs> Thanks, thank goodness. All right, so I'm so happy to have you in the studio. Thank you so much. Um, and welcome to, to, to the show. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your work then, because um, I've given a, a bit of an introduction um, before we came on it, talking about your um, specialisms in innovative language and content teaching, including the content and language integrated learning approach and phenomenon-based learning. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, please. Sure, sure. Um, I can just tell you, your listeners probably already realize right now I'm from North America, I'm not from England, but um, I still am passionate about education. There's no really but there. But mm. I now live in Spain and um, I travel around Europe and around the world working with teachers and helping them be a little more dynamic in their teaching, putting the students in the center of learning, which is which sounds intuitive and yet most of us, most of us are taught the opposite, that when we walk into the classroom, we're supposed to be the controllers and we're mm. supposed to be in control. And what I try to do is encourage teachers to let go of the control and have students be a little more, not a little more, a lot more participatory. So we could start there. Now, that sounds really great. And I think that's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I work with a lot of uh, beginning teachers and, and trainees, and, and I think it is a sort of a mindset thing. There's, there's certainly people who have, have the impression that you kind of, you can't show them any fear, you kind of, you know, almost talking about the students as if they're going to be catching you out and, and all the rest of it. And I think it does make up, make us put up um, barriers, which actually are quite, um, you know, they go against actually the project of, of inspiration and teaching, don't they? I think that's a really important point, Catherine. It's the same as parenting. It's so similar. We were brought up by parents who were very authoritative, at least I was, and, and I don't know, perhaps you were as well. And they were supposed to be the adults. They were supposed mm -hmm. to be the authority and the same in teaching. And yet the more transparent we can be, I'm not saying show weaknesses, but transparency and explain that we don't know everything and that we're human too and that we're learning every day and I think that's very important that our students know that if we don't know something, we will admit it and find out, find the best answer possible with their help, if, if possible. I know, and it's it's it is an interesting dynamic, especially perhaps a generational thing. Um, you know, trying to encourage students to see to see that fact that we are all learning all the time, and and you know, we don't have all the answers, and actually it's knowing what to do when you don't know what to do that actually is is what's going to serve them very well isn't it in this life i think that's a really good point i think maturity has a, a really important place in the classroom and i know a lot of children who are more mature than a lot of adults mm -hmm. and part of being a, a, an effective teacher is by showing strength even when we're not sure about something contextual and mm. just saying, you know what, I think that's a very interesting question, or this is a very challenging problem, and I'm going to think about the answer, or I'm going to find the answer. So our students see our processing so that they know how to process, and that's really critical in the learning environment. 
to model that sort of dynamic. Absolutely. And it builds their resilience as well, I think. I think that's a really important point as well, because what I tell teachers is the base, at the base, as much as we don't want to admit it, our students are not going to learn most of the content we present in our classes, but what they will remember is how we felt about them, how we showed them whether we felt they were valuable or not, and basically modeling how what learning is, how important we think it is, so that they will go out into the world, they'll leave the classroom and continue wanting to learn in some way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd just like to sort of take it back a step and just sort of, could you tell me a bit about a, a day in the life? What do you kind of do and how did you get to be doing the things you're doing these days? Sure. Um, this is interesting because I'm a teacher trainer. So I have the great good fortune to be invited by publishers and by the schools themselves to go into the classroom. And in most um, in the United States, where I'm from, it's very common to go into the classroom. The parents go in and, and you're, they're very welcome there. In Spain, where I'm living now, and I just came back from Finland, it's the same thing. You really are not supposed to go into the classrooms. Um, it's not comfortable for the teachers. There are mandates about it. And I'm saying that because I do have a good, the great good fortune to be able to go in so I can see what's happening in the classroom. So my day to day is used to be going from school to school, going into the classroom and supporting the teacher, trying my best to have them feel safe and secure while I was observing them, which is not a very comfortable <laughs> dynamic. Yeah. Um, these days I'm doing more things online, which I also really like, and I found that it can be just as effective. But mostly I'm just finding ways to support teachers with whatever's coming up for them. No, that's actually great. And I think it's it's so interesting, actually. I was surprised that, that you said Finland. I think Finland sort of sits in all of our, our educational consciousness um, as sort of this um, everything's very very strong and very open and very dynamic and you know they're winning all the stuff although I'm not sure that's necessarily true these days but it's it's the view we have so I'm really surprised to find that they're quite um quite closed off in in terms of letting people into the classroom they are really restrictive and I'm always surprised as well and I love going to Finland I love it and there is a whole myth about the Finnish school system and mm. for in many schools that's true and in many schools it's the same as all over the world they're doing their best as well and you're right in that Finland is not at the top anymore although we should whisper that <laughs> I think they're probably second but Estonia is the is at the top of the educational system right now but yeah, they are restrictive. In Finland, it's very interesting because to be a teacher, you have to have a master's at least in preschool, yeah. primary or secondary. And it is, it's very, um, it's very regimented in a sense. So yeah, it is surprising. Yeah, that's really interesting. A bit of, a bit of sidetrack there. Um, <laughs> I, let's talk a bit about your, your sort of your pedagogy really and your sort of experiences about supporting teachers in the classroom let's imagine that this is one of the schools where it's really open and free and you can get in there and really um sort of support a teacher sort of live and in the moment as it were um how did you how would you go about that what does that look like well that's a really interesting question i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to answer the whole thing because there's so many factors, you know, as an educator and the listeners know as educators that there's a lot of personality issues. And if I go in and the teach and we get along instantly, 
it's still difficult. It's still difficult. So imagine if I get in the classroom and the teacher's a little defensive or, mm. you know, they're, they, they, something about me sets, sets them off. It triggers them. Then it's going to be equally difficult. What I try to do when I go into a classroom, I, again, I'm not so much in, interested in the content. I'm interested in the whole learning environment. Mm. And at the base, what my goal is, is to support the teacher in creating an environment so that when the students leave the classroom, they feel just as empowered as inside it. What that means is focusing on 21st century skills. Mm. And if you want me to, I, I think probably most people know what 21st century skills are, but they're the ones that are not necessarily in the curriculum. So when I go into a classroom, I will first chat with the teacher, hopefully, um, I have at least two minutes to just say, listen, I'm here to observe. There's, there's, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to support you. Hopefully they believe me. Most of the time they're very nervous. Uh, again, we're humans, we're teaching little humans. And what I'm trying to do is help them relax, lose a little bit of control, trust the students a little more and have the students be the center of attention. Yeah, and no, that's, that's, that's so brilliant. Thank you. And you know, what, what drew you to being a teacher trainer and, and engaging in this work? Wow, these are wonderful questions. I love them because most people say, how did you become a teacher? And you're asking what, how I became a teacher trainer. I'm a teacher first and foremost. I just want mm -hmm. everyone to know that because I love, absolutely love teaching. I'm also passionate about teacher training. At some point, I loved being in the classroom, but at some point I said, you know what? I don't want to be one of those bitter teachers in the teacher room smoking a cigarette. I don't smoke, but smoking <laughs> a cigarette and just complaining all day long. And you know that that happens, unfortunately. And I said, I need something more. And so mm -hmm. I went back to school. I got my doctorate and um, I had a little break from the day to day. And I mm -hmm. found I had something to say. And so I started going to talks publishers heard me they liked how i said it and what i was saying and i just went off from there it's but it's really important to have something to say instead of just deciding oh i want to be in front of people i want to talk that's not what it's all about yeah no absolutely and you know i i can empathize with that because i mean i'm still in the classroom but i've I'm doing my doctorate at the moment and good for you, you. <laughs> thank you one of these days I'll, I'll finish it but it's it's you definitely get to a point where you think it's just I don't want to just be in the grind you know I want right. to do something else I've got like you say something to say and something to contribute that can actually you know you know because I got to, seeing those teachers grumpy in the staff room you just thought you can either decide that you're just gonna let this play out or you can decide to do something about it can't you that's right that's exactly right and I admire you because I know that you have a child and that must be so challenging and a lot of getting a doctor just so you know is finishing so I encourage you to finish it and you never know where it's going to lead well that, that's it I don't know I'm a bit like the cat you know I don't know what I'm going to do with it once I've got it but <laughs> that's right that's it's, right it's an interesting journey, and and um, so let's let's talk a bit about, about the content of that doctorate. Then, so what was it focused on? Project based learning, phenomenon based learning. Tell us a bit about um, about the actual pedagogy of it. Then, okay, you're going to be a little disappointed in this, Catherine, because my doctorate actually was not in education; it was on literature. <laughs> so. Oh well, I'm sure that's wonderful as well. So, okay, 
tell us a bit. Yeah, this is bad radio host researching. Um, no, no, us- no, don't worry. <laughs> I don't tell everyone because most people assume it's on education. What I will say to make an, a nice segue and to save both of us <laughs> is, is that having finished the doctorate, you know, going to school just teaches you discipline. And so once I knew how to research a little better and once I knew that this is going to lead to this and I can expand on and help the processing, the the whole dynamic of getting a doctorate helped me then when someone called me up, this is a a segue, it's gonna make sense. Someone (laughs) called me up and said, Donna, I'm going to Mexico. I need you to research phenomenon-based learning, get it together and we're getting on the plane. And in a month, I had no idea what phenomenon-based learning was before then. In a month, I had to do an enormous amount of research and pull it together. And it wasn't just that I had to educate myself enough about this topic, and there was no one source where it was. I had to make sure that it was organized enough to educate 50 teachers in primary, secondary, and university level in Mexico in you know 30 days. And yeah. so that's how I started. So it's it's I think you're absolutely right, isn't it? The, the the skills that you get through that academic process really do stand you in very good stead as a springboard to sort of getting into other things. Um, so having learned about it in this 30 days, now you're the expert. Tell us a bit about it. Phenomena based learning. OK, I love phenomena based learning. I feel like it's one of the most organic ways that we can help students um, transition out of the classroom into the professional world, whatever profession they want, if it's vocational, if it's staying in the academic environment, more traditional systems, whatever it is. Many people might know that Finland has betted now on the phenomenon-based learning. It's not an ideal situation there. Some of the schools are doing it and a lot of them are struggling just like everywhere else in the world. But phenomenon-based learning, essentially, I call it project-based learning with sparkles. Mm, It has- Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it just has a lot of different elements, such as it has to be interdisciplinary. It includes the five C's of CLIL, which is the content language integrated learning dynamic. A lot of the time, project-based learning is based in bilingual classes, but it can be anywhere. And other things that needs to be publicly presented at the end. And that could just mean the parents, but the students just need to know that someone outside of the classroom is going to hear their work and it's based on real life issues so it's really magic it helps the students become more autonomous and learn collaborative skills so could you give us maybe a worked example of us of a particular instance where you've used this and you felt that it really made a difference to the students um, and perhaps even to the teachers that is a great That is such a wonderful caveat that you said to the teachers also. And I've worked with a lot of teachers doing these projects, but I'll go back to one of the teams in Mexico that I first worked with because Mm -hmm. they were incredible. And there were eight teachers from eight different disciplines and we're including art and PE and history and physics, you know, sciences. And what they did is they created a project called where do art and migration meet? And I mean, just the title was incredible. So you start, the the teachers themselves were overwhelmed with how constructive and dynamic it was. And they sent me videos afterwards of the students with so much confidence and such pride in the research they had done and the artwork and, and the conclusions they made. 
So it has to do with teachers really enjoying their work again, finding new elements that really sparked their interest. And it's about the students becoming proud of themselves and trusting each other and so much more. I know I'm sounding very idealistic, and yet it's true. It's true, Catherine. No, it's it's it sounds really. I mean, what a brilliant topic! I mean, there's so much that that right. even you know a, a doctoral student could uh, could go to town on that. You know, and That's I think right. one of the things um, that certainly I've noticed over the years, and I've I've done some work with philosophy for children, which I don't know if you've come across, but that's another pedagogy that that encourages students to really engage and take ownership is just how mature some of the responses can be um, that perhaps in a more traditional pedagogical framework, we might, we might not imagine that they could achieve. And so we, we teach to a, a level which doesn't really satisfy their curiosity. And, you know, I wonder what your thoughts are about that sort of thing. Yeah, I love that because a lot of times teachers maybe unwittingly are teaching to the lowest common denominator because mm -hmm. they want to be sure that everyone understands what's going on. And yet what I try to encourage teachers to do for their benefit as well is to have the highest expectations they can to believe their students will reach those, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, and then do everything they can to help those students reach their highest expectations. And so, yeah, there's a lot of times that teachers don't believe their students can achieve some of the things that we propose to them, but if they don't try, they're never gonna know. And what you're saying as well is, it's the whole attitude in the classroom changes when we believe something may happen, when we, create enough materials and resources so it does. And just watching the sparks in our students' eyes, it's priceless. There's nothing like it. No, that's, that's really brilliant. Thank you. Um, I wonder, let's flip it a little bit then. So you're talking about the teachers who um, are going to be trained in, in this particular delivery pedagogical method. And, um, you know, you spoke earlier about how some of the teachers, they look a little, little nervous, perhaps they're a little defensive. Um, how does that work in terms of the, the wraparound um, sort of experience for the teacher that you're working with? You said you have two minutes at the beginning. How does it work? Do you get a debrief afterwards? And what's the sort of feed forward in supporting them to embrace these kind of techniques? Well, in the best case scenarios, if I have a coordinator who is incredibly interactive, I will send a sh very short video to all the teachers first and show them what we're going to be doing and mm -hmm. just so they can get an idea. And then I might send them some activities, some scaffolds. What I do is phenomena-based learning is a big mouthful. It's a big change. And so what I encourage them to do is begin with scaffolding. Now, you're familiar with the term, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. for anyone who isn't, it's just really pre-teaching academic language or the concept or even images that you're going to see in the main body of the lesson. And if I can get, if I can convince a teacher to risk their nervousness by mm -hmm. beginning with a scaffold, just a scaffold, it, it changes the whole dynamic of their lesson because a scaffold can be maybe 10 minutes at the most. And just that change in adding one activity that's 10 minutes long means that they have to rearrange everything else. Mm. Now, if I can support them in doing that, then that's the beginning. That's, that's how they can start. That often takes, Catherine, that 
alone may take a whole school year. Yeah, yeah. And so, but once they begin that, then they start seeing that the students really need that activity, first of all, really like it because then they're using varied learning styles and they begin making adjustments and relaxing a bit or trusting mm -hmm. themselves a bit. And maybe after, I know it sounds like a long time, but maybe by the third year we can bring begin a project. There are teachers, of course, who make a jump and start in this, the second half of the year, but most mm -hmm. of them need to do scaffolding for at least a year. That's so interesting. And I mean, I my area is to do with um, sort of CPD and trying to cultivate the conditions where it can be more fruitful. And I always feel like there's a bit of a tension. I don't know what, what you make of this between um, wanting to sort of embed something and see results quite quickly and um, actually recognizing the time it takes to to foster something and grow it and make it much more um, sort of naturally embedded in, in the teaching practice of, at the school. Um, one of the things I've experienced is going to perhaps interviews and really feeling quite a lot of pressure to say, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to do it? And I've certainly received feedback previously that sort of suggested that my answer was not going to be quick enough for their needs. They want uh -huh. someone to come in and get the job done uh, by, <laughs> by Christmas. And I don't think that's right. And I don't think that's me. Um, do you ever come across school leadership that want to see a much quicker turnaround that actually goes counter to to the pedagogy that you're advocating? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's really a shame that you go in there and, and explain the time factor and are really honest about it and they don't accept it. Because really the best studies show the best in the most ideal situations, changes are not gonna happen until five years into whatever changes you're mm -hmm. implementing. Five years in an ideal situation. So I, I live in Spain where everything is very relaxed and I haven't come across people who want fast changes. They know their teach. I work with the coordinators or the directors of the school and they know their teachers and they know that change is not going to come fast. Mm. Um, five years for them is short term. So it's going to take much longer. Again, I'm really disappointed that you've had that experience because we live in um you know this instant gratification world but in the educational field that is that's not realistic no i know and it's you know i mean i i don't know i can't speak for it. maybe i've just been un unlucky but it's one of those things where you just feel um that there is a demand to meet you know we need to turn this around this needs to be done very quickly you need to pull these people up and we need to get them back on the right track and actually I, I my my view I think yours as well is we've got to be very much more slowly slowly catchy monkey I think um yes. for it otherwise it just burns out and it doesn't really ever stick and it doesn't ever really become embedded that's right that's right and teachers Again, most teachers need a slow change. They need a lot of patience. It's again, it's very personal. If you have a style, I don't want someone to come into my classroom and tell me how to change. I don't, I try to go in and, and ask them to consider changes. I just mm -hmm. say, I'm not here to obligate you to do anything, but I would love you to consider this if you feel comfortable with it. But there are so many stresses in the classroom. You know mm -hmm. this, we all know this, that, it's not fair, it's not kind, and it's not compassionate to ask a teacher to make radical changes quickly. 
And that might be redundant. (laughs) So um, again, we need to go in and realize it's a slow process. The teacher needs to feel comfortable and the teacher needs to feel valued. And that means a lot of support. And you and I both know that oftentimes, often teachers don't feel supported and actually aren't. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things I do is I try to support them before, during, and after the visits. And it's not always easy, but when, when that happens, it's incredible. And yeah, that was going to be my next question as well, because, you know, do you ever go back to the schools where you've um, done some work with teachers? What do you do you find that it has been sustained? And and, you know, if it hasn't, what, what kind of barriers are are kind of eating away at this um, at, at sustaining it? Well, again, that's a really interesting question. In the beginning, I would go in and do a workshop. The, the coordinators or the directors would call me and I'd do a workshop, get so excited, and the teacher would say, oh my goodness, that's so wonderful. And then, of course, they wouldn't change anything because mm-hmm. we go back to our, our habits. So what I do now is I insist. I insist on uh, saying I'm going to give a workshop and then the next visit, I'm going to do coaching. Then I'm going to mm-hmm. do another workshop and coaching. And I do three of those. And that's where I see progress, because that's when I can present something the coordinators want me to present, go into the classroom and see what they're doing, support them in making even more changes, seeing what they're facing. And then we do two more workshops and two more coaching. And yes, they do feel supported because in between, we will communicate through emails and they'll send me videos. And that's Mm -hmm. a big thing. But even so, and even when the coordinators love what's going on in the school, there's so much pressure from administrators and they bounce back and forth from one methodology to another. And so things don't change the way we expect them or hope they do. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly some, something that's sort of coming out of my research as well, is looking at um, sort of how to how to have these changes that are sustained, that are um, sort of more long term. And there is, I think, a, a bit of short termism about, isn't there, in education and the pressure, because ultimately, you know, the, you want to do the best for the children you have in front of you and, and people are impatient. For, for bringing that about, but perhaps it's counterproductive. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit John Cat Bookshop 
www.ipsoftware.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Um, we have about 10 minutes left of the show. And uh, Donna, I just want to check you can still hear me and you're there. I can hear you. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, um, I can see that Paul has put a comment in the chat and his question is, is this approach applicable across all ages or is it more successful with a particular um, key stage? Donna, I don't know. What do you, what do you um, think about that question? Well, it's actually a really important question. And at some level, you can do this at all ages, even in preschool. So if this teachers start in preschool, and a lot of teachers, preschool teachers do, do project-based learning. What they need to do though is, again, even in preschool, let go a, bit, a little bit of control, see if they can work in, um, I'm trying to think of the word in English, corners, centers, centers, learning centers. If they can do that as part of the project, it really helps the students as they mature and, and go into primary. So yes, it needs to be adapted a little bit in preschool, but um, I used to go into secondary classes and try to introduce phenomena-based learning. And the irony is that I thought I would be the hero of these students. They were finally going to be doing something interesting. And unfortunately, they were so used to just listening to the teacher and wanting to know what to study to pass an exam, they weren't really interested in project-based learning and phenomenon-based learning. So the earlier we can start, the more we can ignite our students' critical thinking. And so, Paul, the answer is yes. And thank you for the question. Uh, that's, that's really great. And I, I think that's an excellent point, actually, Donna, because um, certainly there has been, and I, I don't think my school doesn't do this, I don't think, and I think we are moving away from it, I hope, um, in, in England anyway. But we have had a culture of setting up exam factories, haven't we? Stakes are so high yes. and we've got people, you know, it's about getting into a particular university or getting particular grades and they catastrophize about how life will be over if they don't achieve it. And, you know, I, I read um, The Tyranny of Merit, which is Michael J. Sandor. I read that in the summer holidays, and it's really all about how the the idea that we have this meritocracy is it's a good thing without really realizing the kind of toxic um, sort of underbelly of it. I suppose where people feel that if they only work hard enough, you know, they will get where they want to get. And so they try and cut all the corners they have and put all their energy into the hard work. And, you know, if you don't then make it, you have not only to deal with the failure, but also the, the shame of your apparent failure. Uh, and I don't think that's the right word either. But um, what, what do you think we have turned out a system or a generation of, of students that don't know how to learn more holistically? And what can we yeah. do about that? Well, I'll tell you, I was just speaking with an educator who deals exactly with that. He goes in and he doesn't change the assessment or the standard. The, the students have to do the standardized exams and they're horrific. Mm. They really are. Mm. But what he does is he takes the standard exam and he goes backwards and he makes critical thinking activities based on what they have to know anyway. But what he does is he creates this curriculum where it's all critical thinking. And then by mm. the end of it, not only have they been thinking critically, but they can pass the standards exams. It's, so it's sort of tricking the system, doing both mm. at the same time. 
it takes a while, but it's worth it in the end. Because otherwise, yes, all we're doing is creating students who can pass an exam, forget the information, and go off into the wild blue yonder, not really knowing what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, Paul's just said in the comments as well, he's seen a massive change after the past over the past decade where we used to have creative curriculum and now schemes um, which have been diminished creativity and thinking beyond the lesson objective. And, and that's a real shame. And and I think I think we'd, we'd agree with that. And I think one of the things perhaps that we, we think about with teachers and developing effective teachers is um, somehow, you know, we've all got to be doing the same thing to ensure parity because we do obviously need to make sure all our students do get a, a comparable a comparably good experience but I think somewhere along the line we've standardized the hell out of it and now we've, we've lost the creativity of it yeah and Catherine if you don't mind and Paul may know this Benjamin Bloom the Bloom taxonomy of critical mm. thinking which most of us know is actually what they did is they created that just because in the 1950s I believe it was they went into the schools and saw that most critical thinking had been, had disappeared and so the taxonomy is exactly that was created to introduce more broad broader thinking in the in the classroom now, there are a lot of taxonomies out there. I'm mentioning Bloom because he's addressing exactly what Paul is saying and what you're saying, Catherine. We need to broaden our lessons and we need to believe in our students that this is for their benefit. The problem mm -hmm. is it's so much easier, the lower order thinking skills. It's so mm -hmm. easy to create a lesson for it, ask those questions and assess the answers. And that's really the big problem. You give students a higher order level question and there's no one correct answer. It means that the teacher really has to pay attention and balance a lot of different elements, not just the answer, how they came to the answer, how they expressed their conclusions, what went, what was behind it, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's not no, an it's, easy question. It's, it's not easy at all. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what it's like in Spain, but certainly in England, um, sort of we have a very knowledge rich curriculum and certainly um, knowledge and learning is measured by how much children know and how much children can remember. And I think that that that's what we're all being judged against now in terms of our inspection framework. And I think that does lead to a lot of recall and, you know, not necessarily encompassing, which I am sure is the air retention, but I, you know, I, it doesn't encompass the creativity, does it? No, it doesn't encompass creativity. And in Spain, it's really pretty horrific just because most of the learning is based on memorization and they have, mm. to, they have to memorize, memorize and memorize more. And if they don't say it exactly how it's written down, they get penalized and it creates a whole population of people who are really very, um, they have blinders on. They can only talk about what they've memorized, which is very mm. unfortunate. And it's not for their benefit. It's not for the, you know, it's not, it doesn't generate a, a holistic environment. Mm. And or a holistic can, person, really. Or a holistic person. There you go. No, that's that's really great, and uh, we we are very nearly at nine o'clock. Uh, sorry, at ten o'clock, and I I am going to wrap this up very shortly. And I do apologise that we had um, such a shaky start. Donna, it's been so fantastic speaking to you. I wonder if you could leave us with maybe your thoughts on if you had a magic wand, what would you 
change in the world of education if you had one wish? If I had one wish in the in the world of education, good lord, let me think. Um, <laughs> I would in, in say no. <laughs> take your yeah, time. No, no, no. I'll do it really fast. I would say the more we can co-create with our students, the more we can show how much we value them, the more that we can sort of emit a feeling of an environment in which they are empowered and do whatever we can to help them feel empowered, then we're doing our job. Don't worry about content as much. We're, think about the 21st century skills, how you can include them in any task, and you are doing an incredible job. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Donna, for, for ringing in and for being our special guest this evening. It's been uh, Dr. Donna Lee Fields. Um, and thank you to everyone who joined us live and to Paul as well for your questions and your participation um, during tonight's show. It's very much appreciated as always. Um, remember there are Teachers Talk radio shows all week. Please join me again fortnightly at the same time and you'll be able to download this content and plenty more uh, from the Podbean app or wherever you get your podcasts from. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.